right, well, let's look at God's word together. Before we do that, we always pray. This is a good habit. You should do this at home when you open up your Bible as well. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you, to teach you, to be your guide through God's word. Because God's word can be confusing. Sometimes we, we don't understand it and we need the spirit to help to interpret it for us. So let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is here for us, that you have kept it all these years so that we can look into it, that we have it in our own language, that we can try to understand these concepts and and these teachings. But no matter how smart we might might be or, or, or how difficult it might be, Lord, we always need your spirit to teach us. Jesus promised that he was going to send his spirit to remind us of everything that you said. And so, Lord, this morning, speak to our hearts by your spirit. Teach us by your word. Help us to be changed because of it. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are studying the book of Acts. We have yet to make it out of chapter 2. So this could be a long study. Um, But we are slowing on purpose. Sometimes we rush through life and we miss the details. And the details are important or God wouldn't have recorded them for us. So we are near the end of chapter two. I've titled this the new community boot camp. And I'll explain that in a minute. This is Memorial Day weekend. This is the weekend that we remember all those who have served in the military who have given their lives to bring freedom, to bring safety, to bring democracy into the world, to help us as a nation. And so we do acknowledge them. We thank them for the freedom that we have even to to be here today, to come together. And we look back and we remember the, the wars and the terrible things that people had to go through to get to where we are today. We want to be grateful for the things that people have worked hard for and sacrificed for to give us. So on Memorial Day, we think about those people. People visit the graves. Sometimes there's um, parades and there's military bands and things like that. Um, we know that those people, they served in, in, whether it's Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, or whatever, they served in a, a unit, in, the, in a group of people who were organized in such a way that they were trained soldiers. They didn't just show up the day of the battle. They went to boot camp. They went to training because training is important. And as Christians, training is also equally important for us to understand how to live as Christ wants us to live. Our old behaviors, our old thoughts, the way we were brought up in the world don't help us. Those things are passing away and we are becoming new in Christ. We're being changed by the Holy Spirit. He's, he's sanctifying us. He's helping us. He's helping us to grow and to become more holy as we follow him, as we read his word, as we meditate on what he has said and think about how it applies to our lives. Then we begin to think differently and we begin to have new behaviors that help us and the Holy Spirit helps us all along the way. He prepares us for service, just as boot camp prepares the soldiers to serve in the military. The Holy Spirit prepares us to serve the Lord and to serve one another. So during this time, this boot camp, relationships develop. 
Sometimes people who served in the military together are like brothers and sisters for life. Even though they may have left the military and gone on to, to do other jobs and other things in other parts of the world, they're still brothers or sisters. They're, they're, they're family because of that time they spent together at boot camp. Those relationships got deep and they began to function as a unit, not as individuals doing whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. They had to get up when they were told to get up. They had to eat when they were told to eat. They had to work when they were told to work. They had to run when they were told to run because they were being taught to function as soldiers, as as someone different than they were when they entered boot camp. When they entered, they were just individuals. You know, maybe they were just out of high school or they were, they were just trying to figure out what to do with their lives. Or they felt a call to the military, but they, they weren't a unit yet. They didn't even know each other's names. They had to come together and begin to function differently. Now, I'm not a member of the military. I never served in that way. I've watched enough TV or seen movies where, where it's illustrated. But I was taught this song. Way back when I was a five-year-old in the late 1960s, I, taught, I was taught this song in Sunday school. And maybe a few of you were taught this song as well. It's, a, it's an interesting song to think about today because it uses military terms that maybe we have, as a culture, we've kind of moved away from. Especially in this part of the country, we don't really have a, a large military base. You know, but some parts of the country are still very connected to their military roots. But there's this song, they taught it to us as children, probably I was four or five years old, and it goes like this, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot in the artillery, I may never zoom or the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army, yes sir, I'm in the Lord's army, yes sir. And it goes on and on. (laughs) Do any of you know it? Raise your hand if you know it. Oh, a lot of you know it. I actually taught it to my kids as well, so they might know it. Do you remember, Mariah? You probably hated it. Uh, Anyway, this song was part of like our, our Christian upbringing as children. We were taught that like we're in God's army. So I thought like thematically this was good for us to think about as we look at this Chapter at the end of this chapter, and as we look at what has happened. Now, if you remember, we're in the book of Acts. Peter has preached the first sermon of, of, of the gospel to a crowd of people who gathered because of Pentecost, because there was something going on. There was, there was people praising God and worshiping God, and even in their own language, they heard this. And so they gathered, and Peter preached the sermon to them. And then their hearts were touched. It says they were cut to the heart. Something, something hit them. We know it's the work of the Holy Spirit, but they said, what should we do? What should we do? And so Peter's response was, well, repent. In other words, turn. Remember, we, we practiced turning the other week. Turn from your old life of sin and follow after Jesus. Repent and receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers through the gospel message through his death on the cross. And then be baptized in his name. We just practiced that last week with a few of you. Be baptized in his name. In other words, identify yourself as a Christian, as a Christ follower, and then receive the Holy Spirit. So that is what they did. And it says in the passage, over 3,000 people did that. 
on that day. Now, try to imagine with me 3,000 strangers showing up. Maybe they show up in the parking lot out here, right? Somehow they've got to get organized. Somehow they've got to, to learn. So, so what they know so far is what, what Peter preached to them. But Jesus did a lot more than that short sermon could ever inform them of, right? Jesus, the stories of Jesus go on and on. It says if, 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 if there was you know, not enough paper, there's not enough pens to write it all down. The things that he did, the miracles that he performed, the things that he was able to teach them about the kingdom of heaven and about God and God's love for them. All of these things, these people didn't know that. The 120 who had followed him to Pentecost, but now there's 3,000. So God needed to organize them. He needed to train them. He needed to get them into that relationship with God based on their new life in God. And so as we think about these verses, starting in verse, we'll start in verse 41. If you look at Acts chapter 2, hopefully you've had time to get to it. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 41. It says, those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. In one day, the size of their group went sky high, right? 3,000 people. So, we start in verse 42. The believers who accepted the gospel of Jesus and were baptized in his name, now they did something. It says this word devoted. They devoted themselves. We're going to look at this because being devoted to something means being focused on that particular thing almost exclusively. And we're going to see that in these few verses. They went into boot camp. They left their old life behind and they devoted themselves to this process that God brought about by the power of his spirit in his church. Go back to that slide that we just had there. When, they, when you are devoted to something, you're devoted to a cause, you work to achieve those goals. You, you're willing to invest your time, invest your energy in those goals. This is the the dictionary definition of the word devoted. When you're devoted to a person, you place their needs above your own. So the word devoted isn't like a, you know, a a fluffy little word. It's a serious word. It's a a word that involves working for something and and putting your own needs aside and, and remembering the needs of the group or the needs of the person leading the group. This is what's taking place. It says they devoted themselves, in the next verse, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, first of all, let's remember, these people didn't, they hadn't followed Jesus. They weren't around when he was going, you know, through the land and teaching and doing miracles. They had to hear about all that. They had to be told about that. That's what the apostles' teaching was. They'd probably sit around and they'd say, let me tell you about this one day with Jesus. We followed him to Samaria. And then he sent us on to get something to eat. And when we came back, he was with this woman at the well. Now, 
He was breaking all kinds of taboos here. He was alone with a woman from Samaria. All things he shouldn't have been doing according to the Old Testament law, according to the Pharisees. But Jesus didn't care. He cared about that woman. He spent his time listening to that woman. He told her about her own life in such a way that she was changed and transformed and her life was never going to be the same again. Now, they told it in better detail than I just did, but they were there. These apostles, that's why they're called apostles. They have this special title in the church. They're not just disciples. Those are followers. They were apostles because they witnessed it themselves. They saw with their own eyes. They heard with their own ears everything that Jesus did during those three years of ministry. They were his, you know, right-hand men, right? And women, you know, they were able to get that message directly. And then they spent time with these 3,000 people telling them, telling them all that Jesus did, all that he said, all that he taught, and all that he represented so that they understood on a deeper level. Now, it's interesting. It says the signs and wonders, you know, that are mentioned later. Let me read the, let me read the passage. Sorry. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Now, why do you think that is? Jesus actually did miraculous things as well, right? It was to authenticate that he was from God. It was to prove that God, the God who can multiply fish and bread, the God who can make blind men see, that God was speaking through Jesus. Now the apostles, Jesus has ascended. He sent his same spirit into these these disciples. They also are representing God and it needs to be authenticated. It needs to be proven. And so these signs and wonders are happening as the apostles are teaching about miracles. Miracles are happening. Although we're not told exactly what kind of miracles they are, but they must have included healing. Because look at chapter 3. You're still on the same page, I think. Chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. Taking him by the right hand. This is a, a miracle we'll look at in a couple of weeks. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles were strong. He jumped to his feet, and he began to walk. This was a, a crippled man that Peter comes upon on his way. So we know that that these signs and wonders that are mentioned here in this summary here at the end of chapter 2, they must have included healing. Just as with Jesus, these miracles, they prove the reality and the authenticity of the kingdom of God. Miracles point to the fulfillment of all the kingdom promises. One day there will be no more sickness, no more death. That is a promise from God. You can take it to the bank. And so God does miracles now to remind us and to, to, to point to that and say, one day you'll be free of all this. Every disease, everything that could ever destroy your life and make your life miserable will be gone in Jesus' name. So miracles point to that. And now this is the expectation of this community of new believers. They expect there to be miracles because the kingdom of God is coming to them as they continue to follow Jesus and continue to see him work on the earth. See, miraculous things should be prayed for. 
and even expected in a body of believers. Sometimes our faith is too little. I'm not saying we'll always get what we want. But the fact that here, in the, in the sort of infancy of the church, miracles are happening, and they'll be happening all the way through the book of Acts in the New Testament, is proof that God still does miracles. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that enough to pray in faith for that? Because there's one thing about knowing it, secondly, believing it, but then actually acting on it is a big deal. It takes some faith to pray for, for healing. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. Then we have to trust in God's answers, right? We have to know that he's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. But we shouldn't stop praying. We should always be praying. We're encouraged throughout the New Testament to pray for the sick, that they would be healed. In the book of James, which is one of the books in the, in the latter part of your Bible, for example, it says, this is why we even today pray this way and we anoint people with oil. Because it says in the book of James, when someone's sick, have them come before the elders, anoint them with oil, pray for their healing. These are instructions for the church. When we stop doing what God asks us to do, it's not surprising that we don't see these things. In Matthew 7, I'm going to turn there, if you want to turn there with me. In the Gospel of Matthew, let's hear Jesus' own words about this. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, he says, ask, this is Jesus, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives. So everyone who doesn't ask, I guess, doesn't receive. You you can just use a little logic there. Those who seek, find. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. And then I I love this passage because what it says is, it compares us as, as parents and we love our kids and we, we want to give them what they need and give them sometimes even just what they want. He says, Jesus goes on to say, so which one of you, if your son asks you for bread, are you going to give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, are you going to give him a snake? If you, even though you're evil, in other words, even though you're sinful, if you know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? When's the last time you asked for something? That would take a miracle. Often our faith is, is too small. We don't take that step to ask our Heavenly Father for what we really need or what someone, our loved ones really need. Let's start asking. Let's be confident. If we're going to be the church like the early church, we're going to model our lives around this model here, we should at least be asking. Now, we won't always get a yes. Sometimes it's wait. And sometimes the wait is till we see him in heaven. That's God's business. But we should still feel the love of God and the invitation of Jesus to ask. Amen? Notice in Acts chapter 1, so say in Acts chapter 2, but just flip that one page. Notice in Acts chapter 1, where Luke talks about his first book. Now, we know that's the gospel of Luke, right? So Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, and then Luke wrote the book of Acts. It's sort of like book 1 and book 2. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, he talks about the first book that he wrote, about all the things that Jesus began to teach and began to do. See that there? 
In my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and all that Jesus taught until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he had chosen. Jesus wasn't just a teacher. Jesus was a doer. He would teach and then he would do. He worked with his disciples. He taught them and then they sent them out to do what he had taught them. Doing should always follow teaching. It's the best way to learn. If someone is teaching you how to bake a cake and you're watching them and you're trying to pay attention and you're looking at the recipe and you're working through it with them, until you actually get in there and start doing it, it actually hasn't transferred that knowledge to you, right? You know about, you know about making a cake, but you haven't actually made a cake until you crack the eggs, until you get the mixer out, until you put it in the oven, right? That's when you've caught it. That's when you understand it. That's when you be, can, can begin to say like, hey, I'm a baker. I can bake a cake. Not just by watching the YouTube video, but by actually doing it, learning it and doing it. Too often as modern day believers, we're sitting and being taught things that we never intend to do. To our shame. Our lives are not fruitful because of that. We have to actually go out and do it. The Great Commission starts with a very small little word. Two letters. Go. He doesn't say sit. He doesn't say lay down, have a nap. He says go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them. You know, he gives a teaching them. But go and do it. Don't just sit and think about it. That's philosophy. Christianity is not a philosophy. Christianity is a life and a lifestyle. Okay? Too often people make it into a philosophy. Well, I believe this and I believe that. And I'll argue with you about what I believe and what you believe. And da, 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 da. But you're not doing anything. You're not putting any of it into practice. So we should be encouraged here at the, at the, at the birthplace of the church right here in the boot camp to actually do these things. We have so much teaching that doesn't accompany our doing. We all know that we should love our neighbors. Jesus taught us to love our neighbors. But are we doing it? Only you can answer that question. I can answer for me. Are we doing it? So let's think about this as a community. When they come together, these 3,000 people, they've heard the gospel message, but now they're starting to hear more and more about what Jesus has taught the disciples and the apostles, and they're passing this on. The, the word that I want to um, go to next is this meeting together, right? So in these, in these last verses of chapter 2, it says, everyone was in awe and many wonderful miracles and signs were happening and being done by the apostles. And then verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. This is 3,000 people. When's the last time you felt together with 3,000 people? 
Some of you have attended some Christian concerts recently. I have as well in Boston. And when you're in a, a, a large coliseum with, uh, I don't know, five, 6,000 people, maybe more, and you're singing a worship song, there's something that happens. And I think about this, these 3,000 people coming together around Jesus, it must have been exciting. There must have been something palpable in the air about it as they heard the stories of Jesus, as they continued to believe and let the Holy Spirit teach them. There's a, there's a word for this. It, 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 it's a Greek word, koinonia. Some of you who have been around the church long enough Remember back in the day when we had koinonia groups? Sounds very strange, doesn't it? Sort of like placenta. I mean, it's like a weird word. Koinonia. Like, eh, what does that mean? Right? It's a Greek word, and it means common life, sharing life, sharing life together. So all those who believed in Jesus, who received the gospel message, who've been baptized now and now received the Holy Spirit, were in the same place Sharing everything. Sharing everything together. I want you to think about that. The unity of this particular large group of people is demonstrated actually through their sharing of life together. It also echoes the practice of their ancient cultures, right? That they had come from. In Judaism, there was a culture around friendship. We don't have it so much here. The word friend is kind of used like the word love. Like, I love ice cream, I love my puppy, I love my wife, you know? Like, so friendship is, is sort of like softened by, by our culture. But in that culture, friends were defined as those who had all things in common, Aristotle said. A friend was someone who had all things in common with someone else. Those were friends. The practice is described in in 2 verse 45. They were selling their property. They sold some possessions and they distributed the proceeds from those sales to anyone who was in need, it says. Now, they didn't sell everything. Everyone didn't sell every house that they owned. Everyone didn't sell every... But some people who had extra, I guess, or were able to do it, sold and then distributed those things to those who had less, as anyone had need. Because I want to warn you, many cults have used this to actually steal all the personal property from their cult members, right? Everything now is owned by the collective, right? It's it's sort of like a communist mindset, right? Unfortunately, that's that's, that's not healthy. That's not good. In fact, we know that everyone didn't sell every house because... The believers actually lived their life together in one another's homes. They didn't have a church building. They sometimes went to the temple for worship, but when they were having meals together, when they were sharing life together, having koinonia, they were in each other's houses. So if everyone had sold their house, they would all be on the street. So you just got to be logical and think about what's happening here. Because they were able to meet in one another's homes and share hospitality freely with each other throughout the whole New Testament, we see that, and even in the world today. So if you ever hear 
a leader, so-called leader of a church or a group or a spiritual movement telling everybody that all your property is, needs to go into the big pile in the middle and none of us are going to own anything. That's not what is happening here. What's happening here is those who could sold their summer place in the Hamptons and shared that money with those who had very little, right? They still had a house that they could live in and invite people over for just in case you get the wrong idea. So this meeting together, this breaking of bread and eating together, it says in verse 46, was done with gladness and sincere hearts. The other word for sincere in the Greek is humble. They they did this humbly together, joyfully. Now this takes some change in our, our hearts, right? Someone coming in your house, eating your food, putting their feet up on your coffee table, You might have to be a little humble, right? Because that's not, that's not maybe how you would be doing it, right? These are 3,000 people, so we had to divide them up into groups. I don't know how many people were showing up at your house, but say 30 people showed up at your house. Most of you would be like, ah, what do I do? You know, know, you'd be freaking out because you're overwhelmed. But this is what was happening. So somehow, humbly, and with sincere and joyful hearts, they welcomed this movement of God. The Spirit was so, so at work in them that they were generous with their stuff. They weren't stingy. This new community was following the example of Jesus. More than any of the four Gospels, this is Luke again, Luke's Gospel. The Gospel of Luke regularly describes Jesus either at a table with someone, just leaving a table with someone, or on his way to another table. Read through the Gospel of Luke. You'll see it. On his way to have dinner with, you know, or after having dinner with. Jesus was always having dinner with someone. It's part of the culture of Christianity. It's, it's part of the, the, the hospitality that we should be able to have with one another. Not being afraid of having someone, a stranger in our house, but welcoming a Christian brother or sister or family into our home and allowing them to relax and, 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 and be a guest in our home. The women's ministry on Wednesday nights, um, Monique has been leading a study called Table Talk. And when she first showed it to me, she, she, she showed it to me, she was like, this is what I want to do with the ladies. I was like, wow, what? You guys are going to like eat, eat like a big meal together? What? I, I, I thought this was a Bible study, you know, and then they get into the Bible study. Um, so they've been like learning how to like make different meals as a recipe, I guess, every week or whatever. And they share food together. They're doing like this, but in this day and age, they're doing it in the small chapel. So Monique, I'm sorry if everybody shows up for dinner Wednesday night, but, <laughs> but they're doing it in the small chapel and they're growing in their relationship and they're studying God's word together and they're eating lots of yummy food. This is very much part of how we grow. How we, how we continue to grow in our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with each other. The breaking of bread, that phrase there, it can mean just eating together, but it also means what we just did a few minutes ago, our time of communion, breaking the bread. They shared that together on a regular basis. Whenever you meet together, remember Jesus. He's in your presence Let's remember that. Let's break this bread and drink this cup together. So that's also part of it. And lastly, 
It says in verse 42, at the end, it says, and they devoted themselves to prayer. So they devoted themselves to all of these things. They devoted themselves to listening to the teachings of Jesus. They devoted themselves to fellowship as one family, as one group. They devoted themselves to to breaking of bread together, eating together, sharing of life. And lastly, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to prayer. And you think, wow, that's a lot of praying. But look at verse 47, because 47 helps us to see a little deeper into that. After they broke bread together with glad and sincere hearts, it says, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Praising God. What does that make you think of? The first 20 minutes of church, right? We're singing songs. This morning we were singing old hymns, trying to remember how to sing those songs, but looking at the words and being blessed by the grace and the peace of God and the foundation of Jesus. Praising God. So they weren't just praying all the time, like with their hands folded and their eyes closed. They were also praising God freely. Praising and prayer are similar. A lot of our prayers are actually set to music, just like in the book of Psalms. And so we can remember that, you know, singing together is a time of prayer corporately. We're connected with one another in this way. It said in in Luke chapter 24, verse 43, it says, they were staying continually in the temple. They were meeting continually in the temple, praising God, and they had favor with all the people. So at that time, the persecution hadn't started yet. The Jews were still tolerating them. For them, prayer was both vertical and horizontal, right? It had a positive effect on them in their relationship with God, but it also had a positive effect on them in the community they were in. I'm sure they were praying for Jerusalem. I'm sure they were praying for their their brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts who didn't know Jesus yet. I'm sure that they were praying for those who were sick who came to the temple looking for help. So their prayers also were involving them in the world that God had placed them in at the time. They were in the presence of God together doing this. God would later inspire the Apostle Paul to teach them that they were actual traveling temples of the Holy Spirit. That's where we get that phrase from the Apostle Paul. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God himself resides in you. So right now, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem still existed at this time in the book of Acts. It didn't last much longer. Within 70 years, it was destroyed by the Romans. They pulled every stone apart. They destroyed everything in Jerusalem as they conquered the Jews. So these people needed to know that the temple of the Holy Spirit was their own lives. Was their lives when they came together in Jesus' name? Jesus was there with them but also was their lives individually, no matter where they went. Because persecution is coming. You'll see it in the next few chapters. It shows up a little bit in chapter 6, after Stephen was stoned to death. And then in chapter 8, it shows up with a big bang. The church was scattered from this place. So this is a training time. This is a time where they're getting their roots down deep so that when the trouble starts, they have their foundation in Jesus Christ and they know who they are and they know whose they are and they know that God resides in them no matter where they go, even if they're running for their lives. 
which is what's going to happen here soon as we read this book. What I want you to take away from this is just sort of a little evaluation of your own life and my own life. Am I devoted like these early believers? Am I devoted to, to prayer and to praising God with others as well as individually, right? Am I gathering together with people gladly? Not with a bad attitude. Not like, oh, I got to do that again. But joyfully gathering with other Christians. Sometimes just to have a meal and to share your life together. What's going on in your week, right? Are you doing any of that? If not, you need to. It's part of strengthening who you are in Christ. Do you have like anyone as a believer who you're sharing life with? Some of you are very individualistic. It's in your nature to sort of be isolated. But you need others. And that's important as you grow in Christ. Because things will get tough. And when things get real tough, if you don't have others to help you, you struggle. You struggle way too much, way more than you need to. Because you're not living in the, 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 the environment of the church that God created here as the church is born. Are you doing any of the teachings that you're hearing? Or are you just hearing more teachings? Some of you, I don't know how you do it, but you're listening to like a hundred sermons a week. You listen to them on the way to work. You listen to them on the way home from work. You listen to them when you can't fall asleep at night. You're listening to, and I think, wow, if they were doing everything they were hearing, they'd be giants, you know, in the, in the Christian faith. So sometimes I think we might be just listening to more sermons and our lives are not really taking off as they should be. So let's examine ourselves. It's not a bad practice to examine yourself. Where am I with these four things? These four things, the teachings of Jesus, the living of life together, the praising and prayer of God, and the breaking of bread with others. Are these things a part of your Christian life? Because they are part of the church. They're supposed to be part of the church. Church isn't just coming and listening. Church is a lot deeper and richer than that. Amen? Amen. 